Section 15 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Sonrisa, Servision.org. Self-Help with Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Section 15, Chapter 6, Part 2. Cellini was remarkable for his readiness and dexterity in handicraft. One day a surgeon entered the shop of Raffaello del Moro, the goldsmith, to perform an operation on his daughter's hand. On looking at the surgeon's instruments, Cellini, who was present, found them rude and clumsy, as they usually were in those days, and he asked the surgeon to proceed no further with the operation for a quarter of an hour. He then ran to his shop, and taking a piece of the finest steel, wrought out of it a beautifully finished knife, with which the operation was successfully performed. Among the statues executed by Cellini, the most important are the silver figure of Jupiter, executed at Paris for Francis I, and the Perseus, executed in bronze for the Grand Duke Cosmo of Florence. He also executed statues in marble of Apollo, Hyacinthus, narcissus and neptune the extraordinary incidents connected with the casting of the perseus were peculiarly illustrative of the remarkable character of the man the grand duke having expressed a decided opinion that the model when shown to him in wax could not possibly be cast in bronze cellini was immediately stimulated by the predicted impossibility not only to attempt but to do it he first made the clay model baked it and covered it with wax which he shaped into the perfect form of a statue. Then, coating the wax with a sort of earth, he baked the second covering, during which the wax dissolved and escaped, leaving the space between the two layers for the reception of the metal. To avoid disturbance, the latter process was conducted in a pit dug immediately under the furnace, from which the liquid metal was to be introduced by pipes and apertures into the mould prepared for it cellini had purchased and laid in several loads of pine wood in anticipation of the process of casting which now began the furnace was filled with pieces of brass and bronze and the fire was lit the resinous pine wood was soon in such a furious blaze that the shop took fire and part of the roof was burnt while at the same time the wind blowing and the rain filling on the furnace kept down the heat and prevented the metals from melting for hours Cellini struggled to keep up the heat, continually throwing in more wood, until at length he became so exhausted and ill that he feared he should die before the statue could be cast. He was forced to leave to his assistance the pouring in of the metal when melted, and betook himself to his bed. While those about him were condoling with him in his distress, a workman suddenly entered the room, lamenting that poor Benvenuto's work was irretrievably spoiled. On hearing this, Cellini immediately sprang from his bed and rushed to the workshop, where he found the fire so much gone down that the metal had again become hard. Sending across to a neighbor for a load of young oak which had been more than a year in drying, he soon had the fire blazing again and the metal melting and glittering. The wind was, however, still blowing with fury and the rain falling heavily, so to protect himself, Cellini had some tables with pieces of tapestry and old clothes brought to him, behind which he went on hurling the wood into the furnace 
a mass of pewter was thrown in upon the other metal and by stirring sometimes with iron and sometimes with long poles the whole soon became completely melted at this juncture when the trying moment was close at hand a terrible noise as of a thunderbolt was heard and a glittering of fire flashed before cellini's eyes the cover of the furnace had burst and the metal began to flow finding that it did not run with the proper velocity cellini rushed into the kitchen bore away every piece of copper and pewter that it contained some two hundred porringers dishes and kettles of different kinds and threw them into the furnace then at length the metal flowed freely and thus the splendid statue of perseus was cast the divine fury of genius in which cellini rushed to his kitchen and stripped it of his utensils for the purposes of his furnace will remind the reader of the like act of palissy in breaking up his furniture for the purpose of baking his earthenware excepting however in their enthusiasm no two men could be less alike in character cellini was an ishmael against whom according to his own account every man's hand was turned but about his extraordinary skill as a workman and his genius as an artist there cannot be two opinions much less turbulent was the career of nicholas poussin a man as pure and elevated in his ideas of art as he was in his daily life and distinguished alike for his vigour of intellect his rectitude of character and his noble simplicity he was born in a very humble station at andelys near rouen where his father kept a small school the boy had the benefit of his parents instruction such as it was but of that he is said to have been somewhat negligent preferring to spend his time in covering his lesson books and his slate with drawings a country painter much pleased with his sketches besought his parents not to thwart him in his tastes the painter agreed to give poussin lessons and he soon made such progress that his master had nothing more to teach him becoming restless and desirous of further improving himself poussin at the age of eighteen set out for paris painting signboards on his way for a maintenance at paris a new world of art opened before him exciting his wonder and stimulating his emulation he worked diligently in many studios drawing copying and painting pictures after a time he resolved if possible to visit rome and set out on his journey but he only succeeded in getting as far as florence and again returned to paris a second attempt which he made to reach rome was even less successful for this time he got only as far as lyon he was nevertheless careful to take advantage of all opportunities for improvement which came his way and continued as sedulous as before in studying and working thus twelve years passed years of obscurity and toil of failures and disappointments and probably of privations at length poussin succeeded in reaching rome there he diligently studied the old masters and especially the ancient statues with whose perfection he was greatly impressed for some time he lived with the sculptor dusquenois as poor as himself and assisted him in modelling figures after the antique with him he carefully measured some of the most celebrated statues in rome more particularly the antinous and it is supposed that this practice exercised considerable influence on the formation of his future style at the same time he studied anatomy practised drawing from the life and made a great store of sketches of postures and attitudes of people whom he met 
carefully reading at his leisure such standard books on art as he could borrow from his friends. During all this time he remained very poor, satisfied to be continually improving himself. He was glad to sell his pictures for whatever they would bring. One of a prophet he sold for eight livres, and another, the plague of the Philistines, he sold for sixty crowns, a picture afterwards bought by Cardinal de Richelieu for a thousand. To add to his troubles, he was stricken by a cruel malady, during the helplessness occasioned by which the Chevalier del Pozzo assisted him with money. For this gentleman, Poussin afterwards painted The Rest in the Desert, a fine picture, which far more than repaid the advances made during his illness. The brave man went on toiling and learning through suffering. Still aiming at higher things, he went to Florence and Venice, enlarging the range of his studies. The fruits of his conscientious labor at length appeared in the series of great pictures which he now began to produce. His death of Germanicus, followed by extreme unction, the testament of Eudemitis, the manna, and the abduction of the Sabines. The reputation of Poussin, however, grew but slowly. He was of a retiring disposition and shunned society. People gave him credit for being a thinker much more than a painter. When not actually employed in painting, he took long solitary walks in the country, meditating the designs of future pictures. One of his few friends while at Rome was Claude Lorraine, with whom he spent many hours at a time on the terrace of La Trinité du Mont, conversing about art and antiquarianism. The monotony and the quiet of Rome were suited to his taste, and provided he could earn a moderate living by his brush, he had no wish to leave it. But his fame now extended beyond Rome, and repeated invitations were sent to him to return to Paris. He was offered the appointment of principal painter to the king. At first he hesitated, quoted the Italian proverb, Chi sta bene non se muove, said he had lived fifteen years in Rome, married a wife there, and looked forward to dying and being buried there. Urged again, he consented, and returned to Paris, but his appearance there awakened much professional jealousy, and he soon wished himself back in Rome again. While in Paris he painted some of his greatest works, his Saint Xavier, the Baptism, and the Last Supper. He was kept constantly at work. At first he did whatever he was asked to do, such as designing frontispieces for the royal books, more particularly a Bible and a Virgil cartoons for the louvre and designs for tapestry but at length he expostulated it is impossible for me he said to m de chanteloup to work at the same time at frontispieces for books at a virgin at a picture of the congregation of saint louis at the various designs for the gallery and finally at designs for the royal tapestry i have only one pair of hands and a feeble head and can neither be helped nor can my labors be lightened by another. Annoyed by the enemies his success had provoked, and whom he was unable to conciliate, he determined at the end of less than two years' labor in Paris to return to Rome. Again settled there in his humble dwelling on Mount Pincho, he employed himself diligently in the practice of his art during the remaining years of his life, living in great simplicity and privacy. Though suffering much from the disease which afflicted him, he solaced himself by study, always striving after excellence. In growing old, he said, 
I feel myself becoming more and more inflamed with the desire of surpassing myself and reaching the highest degree of perfection. Thus toiling, struggling, and suffering, Poussin spent his later years. He had no children, his wife died before him, all his friends were gone, so that in his old age he was left absolutely alone in Rome, so full of tombs, and died there in 1665, bequeathing to his relatives at Andalise the savings of his life, amounting to about one thousand crowns, and leaving behind him, as a legacy to his race, the great works of his genius. The career of Ari Scheffer furnishes one of the best examples in modern times of a like high-minded devotion to art. Born at Dordrecht, the son of a German artist, he early manifested an aptitude for drawing and painting, which his parents encouraged. His father dying while he was still young, his mother resolved, though her means were but small, to remove the family to Paris, in order that her son might obtain the best opportunities for instruction. There young Scheffer was placed with Guerin, the painter, but his mother's means were too limited to permit him to devote himself exclusively to study. She had sold the few jewels she possessed, and refused herself every indulgence in order to forward the instruction of her other children. Under such circumstances it was natural that Ari should wish to help her, and by the time he was eighteen years of age he began to paint small pictures of simple subjects, which met with a ready sale at moderate prices. He also practiced portrait painting, at the same time gathering experience and earning honest money. He gradually improved in drawing, coloring, and composition. The baptism marked a new epoch in his career, and from that point he went on advancing, until his fame culminated in his pictures illustrative of Faust, his Francisca de Rimini, Christ the Consoler, the Holy Women, St. Monica and St. Augustine, and many other noble works. The amount of labor, thought, and attention, says Mrs. Grote, which Scheffer brought to the production of the Francisca must have been enormous. In truth, his technical education having been so imperfect, he was forced to climb the steep of art by drawing upon his own resources, and thus, whilst his hand was at work, his mind was engaged in meditation. He had to try various processes of handling and experiments in coloring, to paint and repaint with tedious and unremitting assiduity. But nature had endowed him with that which proved in some sort an equivalent for shortcomings of a professional kind. His own elevation of character and his profound sensibility aided him in acting upon the feelings of others through the medium of the pencil. One of the artists whom Scheffer most admired was Flaxman, and he once said to a friend, if I have unconsciously borrowed from any one in the design of the Francisca, it must have been from something I had seen among Flaxman's drawings. John Flaxman was the son of a humble seller of plaster casts in New Street, Covent Garden. When a child, he was such an invalid that it was his custom to sit behind his father's shop counter, propped by pillows, amusing himself with drawing and reading. A benevolent clergyman, the Reverend Mr. Matthews, calling at the shop one day saw the boy trying to read a book and on inquiring what it was found it to be a cornelius nepos which his father had picked up for a few pence at a bookstall the gentleman after some conversation with the boy said that was not the proper book for him to read but that he would bring him one 
the next day he called with translations of homer and don quixote which the boy proceeded to read with great avidity he was soon filled with the heroism which breathed through the pages of the former and with the stucco ajaxes and achilleses about him ranged along the shop shelves the ambition took possession of him that he too would design and embody in poetic forms those majestic heroes like all youthful efforts his first designs were crude the proud father one day showed some of them to robiliac the sculptor who turned from them with a contemptuous pshaw but the boy had the right stuff in him he had industry and patience and he continued to labor incessantly at his books and drawings he then tried his young powers in modeling figures in plaster of paris wax and clay some of these early works are still preserved not because of their merit but because they are curious as the first healthy efforts of patient genius it was long before the boy could walk and he only learnt to do so by hobbling along upon crutches at length he became strong enough to walk without them the kind mr matthews invited him to his house where his wife explained homer and milton to him they helped him also in his self-culture giving him lessons in greek and latin the study of which he prosecuted at home by dint of patience and perseverance his drawing improved so much that he obtained a commission from a lady to execute six original drawings in black chalk of subjects in homer his first commission what an event in the artist's life a surgeon's first fee a lawyer's first retainer a legislator's first speech a singer's first appearance behind the footlights an author's first book are not any of them more full of interest to the aspirant for fame than the artist's first commission the boy at once proceeded to execute the order and he was both well praised and well paid for his work at fifteen flaxman entered a pupil at the royal academy notwithstanding his retiring disposition he soon became known among the students and great things were expected of him nor were their expectations disappointed in his fifteenth year he gained the silver prize and next year he became a candidate for the gold one everybody prophesied that he would carry off the medal for there was none who surpassed him in ability and industry yet he lost it and the gold medal was adjudged to a pupil who was not afterwards heard of this failure on the part of the youth was really of service to him for defeats do not long cast down the resolute hearted but only serve to call forth their real powers give me time said he to his father and i will yet produce works that the academy will be proud to recognize he redoubled his efforts spared no pains designed and modelled incessantly and made steady if not rapid progress but meanwhile poverty threatened his father's household the plaster-cast trade yielded a very bare living and young flaxman with resolute self-denial curtailed his hours of study and devoted himself to helping his father in the humble details of his business he laid aside his homer to take up the plaster trowel he was willing to work in the humblest department of the trade so that his father's family might be supported and the wolf kept from the door to this drudgery of his art he served a long apprenticeship but it did him good it familiarized him with steady work and cultivated in him the spirit of patience the discipline may have been hard but it was wholesome happily young flaxman's skill in design had reached the knowledge of josiah wedgwood 
who sought him out for the purpose of employing him to design improved patterns of china and earthenware it may seem a humble department of art for such a genius as flaxman to work in but it really was not so an artist may be laboring truly in his vocation while designing a common teapot or water jug articles in daily use amongst the people which are before their eyes at every meal may be made the vehicles of education to all and minister to their highest culture the most ambitious artist may thus confer a greater practical benefit on his countrymen than by executing an elaborate work which he may sell for thousands of pounds to be placed in some wealthy man's gallery where it is hidden away from public sight before wedgwood's time the designs which figured upon our china and stoneware were hideous both in drawing and execution and he determined to improve both flaxman did his best to carry out the manufacturer's views he supplied him from time to time with models and designs of various pieces of earthenware the subjects of which were principally from ancient verse and history many of them are still in existence and some are equal in beauty and simplicity to his after designs for marble the celebrated etruscan vases specimens of which were to be found in public museums and in the cabinets of the curious furnished him with the best examples of form and these he embellished with his own elegant devices stuart's athens then recently published furnished him with specimens of the purest shaped greek utensils of these he adopted the best and worked them into new shapes of elegance and beauty flaxman then saw that he was laboring in a great work no less than the promotion of popular education and he was proud in after life to allude to his early labors in this walk by which he was enabled at the same time to cultivate his love of the beautiful to diffuse a taste for art among the people and to replenish his own purse while he promoted the prosperity of his friend and benefactor at length in the year seventeen eighty two when twenty-seven years of age he quitted his father's roof and rented a small house and studio in wardour street soho and what was more he married anne denman was the name of his wife and a cheerful bright-souled noble woman she was he believed that in marrying her he should be able to work with an intenser spirit for like him she had a taste for poetry and art and besides was an enthusiastic admirer of her husband's genius yet when sir joshua reynolds himself a bachelor met flaxman shortly after his marriage he said to him so flaxman i am told you are married if so sir i tell you you are ruined for an artist flaxman went straight home sat down beside his wife took her hand in his and said anne i am ruined for an artist how so john how has it happened and who has done it it happened he replied in the church and anne denman has done it he then told her of sir joshua's remark whose opinion was well known and had often been expressed that if students would excel they must bring the whole powers of their mind to bear upon their art from the moment they rose until they went to bed and also that no man could be a great artist unless he studied the grand works of raphael michelangelo and others at rome and florence and i said flaxman drawing up his little figure to its full height i would be a great artist and a great artist you shall be said his wife and visit rome too if that be really necessary to make you great but how asked flaxman work 
and economize, rejoined the brave wife. I will never have it said that Anne Denman ruined John Flaxman for an artist. And so it was determined by the pair that the journey to Rome was to be made when their means would admit. I will go to Rome, said Flaxman, and show the President that wedlock is for a man's good rather than his harm, and you, Anne, shall accompany me. Patiently and happily the affectionate couple plodded on during five years in their humble little home in Wardour Street, always with the long journey to Rome before them. It was never lost sight of for a moment, and not a penny was uselessly spent that could be saved towards the necessary expenses. They said no word to anyone about their project, solicited no aid from the Academy, but trusted only to their own patient labor and love to pursue and achieve their object. During this time Flaxman exhibited very few works. He could not afford marble to experiment in original designs, but he obtained frequent commissions for monuments, by the profits of which he maintained himself. He still worked for Wedgwood, who was a prompt paymaster, and on the whole he was thriving, happy, and hopeful. His local respectability was even such as to bring local honors and local work upon him, for he was elected by the ratepayers to collect the watch-rate for the parish of St. Anne, when he might be seen going about with an ink-bottle suspended from his buttonhole, collecting the money. At length Flaxman and his wife, having accumulated a sufficient store of savings, set out for Rome. Arrived there, he applied himself diligently to study, maintaining himself, like other poor artists, by making copies from the antique. English visitors sought his studio and gave him commissions and it was then that he composed his beautiful designs illustrative of Homer, Aeschylus, and Dante. The price paid for them was moderate, only fifteen shillings apiece, but Flaxman worked for art as well as money, and the beauty of the designs brought him other friends and patrons. He executed Cupid and Aurora for the munificent Thomas Hope, and the Fury of Athamas for the Earl of Bristol. He then prepared to return to England, his taste improved and cultivated by careful study. But before he left Italy, the academies of Florence and Carrara recognized his merit by electing him a member. His fame had preceded him to London, where he soon found abundant employment. While at Rome he had been commissioned to execute his famous monument in memory of Lord Mansfield, and it was erected in the north transept of Westminster Abbey shortly after his return. It stands there in majestic grandeur, a monument to the genius of Flaxman himself, calm, simple, and severe. No wonder that Banks, the sculptor, then in the heyday of his fame, exclaimed when he saw it, This little man cuts us all out. When the members of the Royal Academy heard of Flaxman's return, and especially when they had an opportunity of seeing and admiring his portrait statue of Mansfield, they were eager to have him enrolled among their number. He allowed his name to be proposed in the candidate's list of associates and was immediately elected. Shortly after, he appeared in an entirely new character, the little boy who had begun his studies behind the plaster cast seller's shop counter in New Street, Covent Garden, was now a man of high intellect and recognized supremacy in art to instruct students in the character of professor of sculpture to the Royal Academy. And no man better deserved to fill that distinguished office, for none is so able to instruct others as he who, for himself and by his own efforts, has learnt to grapple with and overcome difficulties.
After a long, peaceful, and happy life, Flaxman found himself growing old. The loss which he sustained by the death of his affectionate wife Anne was a severe shock to him, but he survived her several years, during which he executed his celebrated Shield of Achilles, and his noble Archangel Michael Vanquishing Satan, perhaps his two greatest works. End of section 15